Well, this evening's a a bit different in a couple of ways. Uh, Firstly, it's different because I'm carrying on from this morning. I don't think we often have it that way round, but that's the plan this evening, to follow on from this morning and to end off the psalm uh, that we looked at this morning, Psalm, Psalm 19, Psalm 19. And the second reason it's a little bit different is we're just taking a few verses, often we take quite a few verses these days, but we've just got three verses this evening, and uh, the advantage of that will be that we can take them slowly, can think through them, trust, pray through them, hope there will be a depth of reflection that goes on in our hearts. So we're in Psalm 19, we had Psalm 139 read for us, it's relevant, a couple of verses from that we will come to, but we are in Psalm 19 and we're looking at verses 12 to 14 this evening. Having looked at God's revelation this morning in creation and in his word, we come really to now the sensitive person's response to God's word. The sensitive person's response to God's word. So after recognising God's speaking in the skies and speaking through the scriptures, it then comes to these last few verses of more personal prayer at the end of the psalm. Um, One person has said, if you had God's works at the start of Psalm 19, God's word in the middle, and then at the end you have God's worshipper. You have God's worshipper. And uh, you can see that it is along those lines because the person at the end of the verse is wanting to be acceptable in God's sight. Uh, that is the, the language of worship, we're looking to be pleasing and acceptable, not just in the animal he presents, like in Old Testament practices, but himself, he wants himself to be acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. It is really a, a, a prayer for purity, hence the title, Prayer for Purity. And it follows on from thinking of the purity of God's word, the purity of God's word. So you imagine that you uh, park your car next to somebody who has just had uh, you know, one of these spotless washes and shines and, and all the chemicals put on, got a white car and it's just gleaming and you thought yours was okay but it's parked next to it and you see the two together, you feel somewhat embarrassed and you think, right, I'm off to the car wash. My white car is very impure. And as we see God's word in its purity, one of the reactions for us is, I need to be clean. Things aren't right. I'm praying over this. So it's one um, response of somebody who's appreciating God's word. So we're going to follow through the verses. So my head, I haven't got headings. I'm just going to put the verses up bit by bit to enable us to think through them. And it starts off with a, an initial question. An initial question. Who can discern his errors? Is what he comes on to. Who can discern his errors? Who can work out his failings? His imperfections? Who can work out her faults? The New Living Translation puts it quite thoughtfully. How can I know all the sin lurking in my heart? How can I know all the sin lurking in my heart? 
Can you work them out? You suss them. You know all the all your faults, all, all the sins you commit. You've always been aware of them. The implication is that we we don't know. And we can't work it out on our own. Who can discern his errors? We can use the help of others. That is a help, a God-given help. I had a, a couple of people speak to me in uh, recent uh, weeks, mature Christians, asking about strengths and weaknesses. That was a bold thing to ask uh, another Christian. You know, what are my strengths and weaknesses? What what does the Lord help me doing and what should I work on more? I don't know whether you've got people you can ask that sort of question. It's quite a brave question, isn't it? And iron sharpens iron. God gives us good, faithful friends to help us. The help of others can be of use. But especially here, um, he realises that he needs the help of God to discern his errors. Because he's turned it into a prayer. He's turned it into a prayer been stating so much of things about God's revelation at the start but now after this he's turning to prayer. Who can discern his errors? And it's a prayer. He knows he needs God's help. He knows he needs God's help. And so we move on to this prayer. And this is the first part of it. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. We're going to find as we go through these short verses that there are there are three different types, if you like, of, of, of sins referred to. So, all sin is sin. All sin is serious. You know that. It's not all equally serious, if I can put it that way. It's not all equally wicked, it's not all equally damaging. There are different types of sins. I know it can be a little bit dangerous to pursue that line and um, some groups of people have taken it in a wrong line, but I think it will come out in this psalm and if you look elsewhere in the Bible you can see why that is plain and obvious. And here, in the first part of what he says, he's talking about hidden faults. Hidden faults. What are hidden faults? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Well, it may be that they're hidden from others, possibly part of it, but I think it's probably most likely that they're hidden from us. They're faults that we are not aware of or not taking seriously or overlooking. Hidden faults. We are blind, aren't we, to so many of our faults. Sometimes we, 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 it's drawn to our attention where we've gone wrong by us or by the word or, or the Lord in some way and we think, how did, I never, how did I not see what was happening? Hidden faults. The sun exposes hidden things. We saw that at the end of verse 6 and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And the Lord can expose what is hidden in our lives. Do you want to be made aware of hidden faults? So it's quite a big question, isn't it? 
Can you pray along with this prayer? You want to be rid of them so that you're declared innocent of them. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is where that psalm that we had read, Psalm 139, the, the prayer at the very end of that psalm, so helpful. You, you, many of you will know it. It's, um, it's a challenging thing to, to think about and to pray genuinely. Verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. It's a prayer really to be scanned. You've got an antivirus package, you put it on your computer, you run it and it goes through all the files so quickly. It's looking for things which shouldn't be there, things that there's something wrong with. (coughs) highlights them, deals with them. You go on and have a medical scan and they scan through parts of your inside and they're looking for things that shouldn't be there, aren't quite right, need rectifying and you have a scan and some results. Do you want a spiritual scan? you want the Lord to spiritually scan you to see some of the hidden faults? Well, there can be many hidden faults. Uh, somebody in our house is reading this book called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate by Jerry Bridges. Uh, I'm not sure if I've read all of it, I've read parts of it, but just the title I find challenging enough. And uh, let me just read you some of the, as it goes past the introductory chapters, it then takes a, a number of faults which are often seen as respectable, acceptable. Perhaps these are more prone to be the hidden faults. Ungodliness, anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride. Selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy and related sins, sins of the tongue, worldliness, hidden faults, hidden faults. And as we go through these verses, I thought it might be helpful to have, if you like, a couple of case studies, uh, two particular faults, areas of fault that we might be thinking of. And I've gone for these two because they're in the Sermon on the Mount. So they're things that Jesus unfolds in this way. They're the sins of, of lust and the sin of anger, lust and anger. So what might be hidden faults in those areas? Well, I don't mean temptation. So temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted yet without sin, we're told. We're to pray against temptation, we're to resist temptation, 
But actually, we don't need to feel guilty about temptation. We can have all sorts of bizarre and wrong things cross our minds. They're unwelcome, they bounce in and they bounce out and they're off and they're not from us really. I don't think we need to feel guilty about temptation. But sometimes we we welcome them. We, we, We want them in. We enjoy their company. We want the temptation to linger. We entertain it. And so with anger, for instance, as someone is unkind to you, they provoke you, it it hurts you. Um, Well, it's not wrong so far. You couldn't help that. But you start to nurse a grudge. You wish them to be hurt back. Your thoughts about them are unkind. You hate in an evil way. Your your heart is boiling with anger towards them in a a way that wants to do them damage. You would like to do them damage. And these are hidden faults of anger. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fall will be liable to the hell of fire. So these hidden faults, serious, because you can see, hidden faults of anger. Or with, with lust. So a wrong thought or a wrong image comes to our attention. And just seeing it is not necessarily wrong. You can't help seeing things sometimes. But if we love it and we enjoy it and we continue to look at it, Maybe we fantasise in the light of it. You you bring the thought to mind. You run a course of action along those lines. You turn back to the page that you saw. You click on the website again. Hidden faults of lust. And Jesus says in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you want to be innocent of such things? Do you want to be clean of such things? They're they're hidden faults. Perhaps nobody else does know about them. They probably don't. But are you discontent with the fact that they're there? Maybe you overlooked this, but you're thinking now, well actually now, now you're mentioning these things. Yeah, there's things I've let slip, there's things which I'm not really seeing as faults, problems, sins, and, well, yeah, I'm starting to declare me innocent from hidden faults. Oh, declare me innocent. What, what, what that, uh, being declared innocent of these faults, what, what might that mean? Well, I think we can take it in two ways. We need to take it in two ways, I think. Uh, we want to be declared innocent in terms of our position, our standing before God. 
our guilt. And we want to be innocent. We don't want the guilt of them to be attached to us. We say, declare me innocent, declare me blameless from hidden faults. And that prayer is answered through Christ. And your position is considered innocent. On the cross he dies for all your sins, including your hidden faults and including your wrong thoughts. When it says in 1 John 1 verse 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses from all sin, it includes immoral thoughts, angry thoughts. If you're trusting in Christ, you are declared innocent from those faults. That is a wonderful thing in terms of your position and status, you're guiltless. But we do, we wonder at that, but if, if that's truly happened, we want more than that. And we want to be innocent in terms of our practice as well as our position. As well as the guilt being dealt with, we want to go onwards in a way which is clean and pure. We want to be able to say before the Lord, I am increasingly innocent of these hidden faults. God has said, be holy even as I am holy and recognising increasingly the holiness of God. So we want that holiness worked out in our lives deep down in, in the hidden ways. Not just when others see and raise their eyebrows and look, look down at us, but in a genuine way before the Lord we want to be clean and rid of things. That We want it deep down. So you can see this, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. But we move on. We move on to verse 13. And we come to another type of sin described. Verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So what are presumptuous sins? Well, we've got a good head start this morning. If you're here, Tony explained presumptuous sins as we started the reading. They're, they're arrogant sins, they're proud sins, they're deliberate sins, they're stepping over the line, knowing that you are stepping over the line. They're, they're more planned as sins, they're more conscious. We know full well we're doing wrong, yet we're doing it anyway. You might remember that in some of the offerings there was a distinction between unintentional sins and sins of, if you like, high hand. Where, where there was very deliberate and wrong but it was pressed on anyway. It wasn't a sort of unconscious fault. And he wants to be kept back from them. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, from deliberate sins from very obviously crossing the line since. You want to be kept back from them. Feel the need for God's help to be kept back from them. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. And he realises that these sorts of sins can exert a power if we get into them. He says, 
let them not have dominion over me. Let them not have dominion over me. So these sorts of sins can have a a growing, dominating effect, a controlling influence on the life. Well, it shouldn't be like that from the, for the believer. You see the word dominion, if you know your Bibles, know your New Testaments, perhaps your, your sort of automatic concordance is rattling up Romans 6 maybe in your mind and Romans 6.14 for those under grace who've experienced God's grace, whom the Spirit is at work in, who are servants of righteousness, it says 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. In the times of God's grace, it should be different. We shouldn't have these things in our life dominating our life. So what might this be? Well, you might want to pursue some of the other areas that we read, but let's follow with our two case studies. So, with anger. So there is the secret anger, the, the the simmering anger, the hate, the grudge. But what it, what it leads to then deliberate steps, perhaps. Planned steps, wrong steps, fired up by a wrong heart. So you, you send a message to someone to hurt them. And you've thought about it. And you know it might hurt them. And you still want to do it. And you, you press go, enter, return, whatever, send. Or you humiliate someone in front of others or you run them down by gossiping about them and you've been looking for that opportunity. You're rather hoping that you might be able to get the opportunity and yes, you've got it and oh, oh that felt good. I was able to do it. I've been looking for the opportunity to do that for some time. Or you go round and, and you, you give somebody a piece of your mind and you know it's unbridled and you know it's not Christian in spirit, but you just, oh, I've got to do it. It made me think back to uh, one time when I answered the door as a kid and it was my next door neighbour, he was the same age as me, I opened the door and he tried to punch me. Didn't say anything, he tried to punch me. I was able to stand back, he didn't punch me and parents got involved and I was okay. Maybe I deserved it. But it was, obviously, it was a, it was a planned and deliberate thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, and the door opens. Maybe it is physically damaging someone. It's a deliberate, purposeful sin of anger. And so we want to pray, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, deliberate planned sins of anger. Or with lust. So wrong, lustful, immoral thoughts go further and they lead to deliberate wrong action. So maybe a a message is sent which has clear innuendo. A, A conversation which is clearly too long, too personal, out of place for a married person to be having with someone else. And it's known to be, and it's obvious, and yet it's intentional, and it carries on, and there's more than one of them. A a making eyes, a flirting with the eyes, to stir up interest, and you're married, and that shouldn't be happening, and you were planning to do it, and it's deliberate. A touch, which is 
just out of the order. It was not innocent, it was not accidental, it was planned, it was wrong. And these are presumptuous sins, they're deliberate sins. And so in the light of such things we pray, verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins of lust. Let them not have dominion over me. So, two examples, there could be others. I remember someone saying many years ago, uh, they got into a lot of trouble in their life. And I remember him saying to me, in reflection to how he got into this position, even though he was a professing Christian, my heart wasn't in a good place. And the sort of, the subtext of that was, I was doing a lot of deliberately wrong things. Doing a lot of very deliberately wrong things. Presumptuous, deliberate, defiant. Conscience being kicked aside. Good advice being disregarded. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Been reading Micah this week. How different Micah 6 verse 8 is. That's not 6 verse 8. I can't think what it is, but I can tell you what it is. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to show kindness, and this is a bit, to walk humbly before the Lord your God. Humble, sensitive, tentative spirit before the Lord your God. That is very opposite, isn't it? From presumptuous sins. Well, then we have our our third type of sin as we go into the next few verses. As he carries on. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He's frightened of great transgression. What what is great transgression or the great transgression? It's not defined here. Seems to be a major scandal, great dishonour to God, immense damage done to others. Many think it's apostasy, somebody who was presenting as being a Christian following the Lord, uh, turning totally, deliberately, it seems permanently, away from the Lord. Great transgression. Exodus 32 has the phrase great sin. Perhaps this was in mind. This is the golden calf episode and afterwards... You read in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. It was was a, a tragic, defiant sin against a God who had been so good to them. It was great sin. It was grievous sin. It was a sin, if you like, which smelt awful, if I can put it in language like that. When God had been so kind to them and so quickly they turn away, even when the 
Ten Commandments are being inscribed in rock with Moses. So what is that? Well, it's, it's difficult to draw the lines, isn't it, between these, these different faults and sins. Perhaps someone has an affair and they go off and the family is damaged and the church is broken and unbelievers are startled and they act in as though uh, they were never a Christian and it is a great transgression. And so many know of it and so many are hurt by it. Or brooding with anger and retaliation and they do something very public and very violent and they won't apologise. And they're in then a bad state themselves and they cut them off from other Christians. And you start to wonder, is there any spiritual life? Was there any spiritual life in them? Great transgression. And it has a connection with the second sort, doesn't it? Because you've got the word then. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. If you're, if you're careless about presumptuous sins, I don't know quite at which stage David wrote Psalm 19. I'm not sure that we know. There are no clues in the title. Was he reflecting a little bit on his own experience? You remember David's failings that you have in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Not quite sure exactly when one thing morphs into another, but he's on a rooftop. He saw a sight, an attractive uh, lady. Maybe there's no fault in him being there. Perhaps some say he should have been out to war. That's what he should have been in those stages. But maybe he was not at fault being out there. But uh, when he, his eyes have gone in that direction, you say, look away, David. You're a married man. You're king. You're looking to serve. So look away. But he leered. He enjoyed it. He had a closer look. He called Bathsheba. And it passes into presumptuous sins. She's not yours, David. Leave her alone. Send her back. He commits adultery. He wants Uriah to be seen as responsible. Uh, But he won't sort of come back and be with his wife. He won't sort of fit in with David's plan. He organises the end of Uriah's life. This loyal, godly man. His life is snuffed out to fit in with David's plan and you see it travelling up, ratcheting up these different degrees in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 1 you have two people referred to Hymenius and Alexander it says in 1 Timothy 1 18, holding faith and a good conscience the importance of a good conscience in all this is significant By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, 
that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, we know God preserves his people. Believe in the preservation of the saints. Nobody will snatch them out of Christ's hands, but some do end up causing immense damage. And others, it seems as though they were never truly Christ's at all. The great transgression. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So you have these three different aspects of sin, if you like, increasing severity, all serious, increasing severity. And then he ends up with a, a, a final prayer, a sort of summarising prayer. It's a prayer which actually I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, is often put on our PowerPoint before the service as one of the sort of rotating um, slides. It's a good prayer. And it comes in as verse 14, as a sort of where he ends up after thinking of God's revelation and praying it through for himself. It's verse 14, when he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So he comes back to the sort of spirit of prayer, in a, in a fuller way, I would say in a very open way. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And he's praying here uh, openly uh, about his words. Let the words of my mouth, I want what I say to be acceptable. I was thinking about that as I was walking this afternoon. Do I pray that? Is that how I feel? Do you pray that? Is that how you feel? You want your words to be acceptable to God, pleasing to him. Yeah, well, you do when others, are, if you like, are listening and Christians are watching, they want to be, you know, seem to be angry or whatever. But is it? can you say that about your words generally, the things that you're saying even when nobody's listening? Can you say that? Lord, I want those to be acceptable to you. I want those to be good and pure. But then he goes even further back than his words. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. So he's going back to the hidden things really. Because you need the hidden things right to stop the other things flowing out. That is what Jesus is teaching, isn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to go back to your inner attitude, your heart attitude. And he does in his prayer. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the things that are deep down, Lord, I want them to be acceptable to you. Nobody else is monitoring them. Nobody else overhears them. They're not going to gossip about them because they don't know what's going on, but you know, Lord, and I want them to be acceptable to you. Lord, have a look at what's going on in my heart and mind and filter it, cleanse it, make it acceptable. And there's an, as we go to the end here, there's an extra element, and I think this is, is helpful, maybe will help you in approaching this. Help you in, in an open prayer like this. Because it can feel quite a difficult thing to, to pray that, or the Psalm 139, search me, O oh God, try me, test me, know my heart. 
scan me. And what helps is that sense of relationship. So perhaps I can put it like this. Do you think it's good to be open with people? Would you like everyone to scan your life? It sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, be open, yeah, like anyone, you know, I'm an open book, they can have, do you? You've got to be able to trust a person, haven't you? You don't say to a thief, come in and have a look around my house. It's not particularly wise, is it? You don't tell a gossip your secrets, can't trust what they'll do with them. You don't tell your most sensitive matters to someone who's got a reputation of being harsh and brutal. It's not wise, is it? No, you you need to be able to trust them. You can be open with people you trust. And when we remember who God is, we can be open and pray like this. And this is where he comes to at the end. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Don't forget that. Put it in the context of that. The Lord is a rock. He says the Lord is my rock. We're in Psalm 19, but if we go to the start of Psalm 18, we see this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Firm, reliable, dependable. Your trust is in him. It has to be in him. It's only in him. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He's your rock. So you can trust him with this prayer. My rock and my redeemer. We're being reminded on Thursday about being redeemed with the precious blood of Christ from Ephesians chapter 1. He's your redeemer. He's your redeemer. You know what it costs the Lord Jesus to be your redeemer. If you're redeemed, you can trust the person who redeemed you to look at your life. This is connected in Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. 2 verse 14 talks of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, when you remember your relationship with God and what God is like, you can trust him and you can pray openly in this sort of way. You can invite God to search. He's your rock. He's your redeemer. So we have a prayer for purity. We've looked at it in five different sections. We've seen the three different aspects of sins it picks on. We've seen the final prayer it lands on. Verse 14. I hope you feel you can pray. Verse 14. We're going to come to our final hymn now, which is a a great hymn as a result of what we've been looking at. But um, afterwards, 
Uh, as a, a, a final prayer, uh, we're going to put the verse 14 up again. And my hope is that all of us, or if you don't have to, nobody would quite see whether you do or not because you've got your, your lips covered most of you. But uh, you might want, with your eyes shut, to pray along, pray together. That verse 14 as an expression of how we feel having looked at these verses this evening. But first, we come to this song. Purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver, purify my heart. meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O Lord my rock and my redeemer Amen